0: The following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For for more information about our church, and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Let's open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5 is where we're going to be this morning. Now the last two weeks we have been studying about relationships and about what God means for relationships and by that just so I'm clear I'm not talking about you know husband wife relationships I'm not talking about boyfriend girlfriend relationships I'm talking about how we interact with one another and covering all of relationships and so the reason we're in this series is because we we know that looking around our world our world is incredibly divided you you cannot walk outside without sensing conflict everywhere you go right i mean it's just it just you you can't open the your newsfeed on your phone, you can't look at the newspaper, you can't read something on social media without just seeing the divide that is happening in our culture. And we want to see then how are Christians to interact differently than the way the, the, way the rest of the world interacts. And in our first sermon on this series, we talked about being created in God's images. And one aspect of that was that God created us to live. In unified, harmonious, loving relationships that look like God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit and how they act together, how they, how they talk, how they treat one another inside the Godhead, the Trinity. Three persons living in perfect unity, but God created us in His image. And then last week, we really looked at our reality, didn't we? We looked at what sin does to us. You know, you, you just have to breathe to feel the effects of sin on your relationships. Right, I mean, I don't know how many marital disagreements that we have in the room that might have happened this morning. And you it all comes down to sin inside of us. We're all broken and sinful people. Unity and love are not things that we normally experience on a regular basis. And we see sin breaking that up all the time. As we said in that, in that sermon, sin always separates. And like Adam and Eve before us and like Cain and Abel, the two case studies that we saw... We see that, that anger, sin, jealousy, separation, and even murder are the effects of sin upon our relationships. Our only hope, as we saw last week, is that Jesus would rescue us, that he would truly restore us to God so we could be reconciled to one another. Now this week we're gonna we're gonna pull on that thread of Jesus a little farther. But here's what the question I really want to look at this morning is how how are we, what impact does the gospel have on us as Christian people that should be affecting our relationships. That's what we want to look at this morning. And here's the big idea. If you're new with us, you should have got an outline when you walked in the door. The outline on the back, on the, on the outline it has a big idea. Here's the big idea this morning. There's a typo in it, but it, it's correct on the screen. And the typo is the word us, okay? So it's not in there. The power of Christ transforms us, that's the word you need to write in, to no longer separate to no longer seek separation from God and others, but to become ambassadors of Christ and ministers of reconciliation. We are made new in Christ. Let's read that again. The power of Christ transforms us to no longer seek separation from God and others, but to become ambassadors of Christ and ministers of reconciliation. We are made new in Christ. Now, I I use some phrases on purpose. If you remember in our sermon series, in the sermon series about... But sin, sin always leads us to run from God. We saw that right off the bat with Adam and Eve, didn't we? The moment they sinned, they hid from God. But sin also has us seek separation from others. We saw that with Cain and Abel when Cain rose up and killed his brother Abel. And so I'm, I'm using words on purpose because I want you to see that God is at work transforming us by the power of the gospel to live differently than what sin normally and naturally does in us. Okay? So with that thought in mind, let's stand together. We're going to read 2 Corinthians five, eleven through twenty one. <clears throat> and again, we stand because we believe God's word to be true. It is inspired, and we want to give honor to our holy God, all wise God for giving us his words. Second Corinthians five, beginning in verse eleven. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we <clears throat> but what we are is known to God And I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who might live Father, thank you for your word. It is written by you. It is inspired by you. It is God-breathed. And we, your people, want to submit to your word today. So I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to the power that is at our disposal in the gospel, to the work that you're doing in us to make us peacemakers and reconcilers and ambassadors of yours. And then, Father, if necessary, convict us where we, our lives do not align to these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks. You can be seated. Now let's look first at the first point in your outline, which is Paul's personal testimony. You know, if you're if you're in the church, or you've been around the church for very long, this passage of Scripture would be familiar to you. Um, but if you're not, that's fine as well. But one thing I want you to notice, if you're familiar or not familiar, is that this section of Scripture is really Paul's personal testimony telling us how the gospel transformed him and not simply saying to us, this is what you need to go do as Christians. This is Paul saying, let me tell you what happened to me and to us and to we, and and then describing the transformation of the gospel in his life. You're going to notice in verses 11 through 13 how Paul began this and why he began it this way. The Corinthian Christians were remarkably hard people on Paul. They, They were brutal on him. After he spent 18 months there, He left, went on to another missionary journey, and a group of naysayers followed in after him to begin to thwart his ministry that he had in Corinth. They claimed that he was a bad public speaker. He was out of his mind. They thought he was power-hungry. They claimed he was a crazy lunatic. That's why he begins this section of Scripture in chapter 5 the way that he does. He's trying to help the Corinthian Christians understand why he did what he did and help them to see the power of the gospel at work in him And by, in turn, see the power of the gospel at work in them. You'll notice in verses 11 through 13 that Paul clearly defined his ministry to the Corinthians. He wanted them to have confidence in his leadership and have an answer for his critics. He wanted them to boast a little bit about him, not not in a weird way, but just have something to say that this guy was indeed from the Lord. And his antics and the way that he acted was truly from God, and he came for us. That's why he wrote in verse 13, That if he was beside himself, which that word means, uh, acted a little crazy or a little out of sorts, it was for God. He was defending the way he came to them as a preacher and as a minister of the gospel. We have to see this section of scripture as Paul introducing it in a way of saying, let me give you my personal testimony. I came to you this way, I've acted this way, but it was from God, and here's the message that I gave to you. Because it's important to see the transformation of Paul's life by the power of the gospel. As a man who self-righteously judged other people and who tried to destroy them to becoming a man who was reconciling people to God through the message of the gospel and having peace and relationships with other people that he met. You've got to remember who the apostle Paul was before he became a Christian. Paul's original name was Saul of Tarsus, a man of unusual character amazing intellect and very strong religious zeal he described himself in the book of philippians this way as a hebrew of hebrews meaning he was top in his class as to the law he was blameless meaning he he lived a very self a very righteous di- disciplined organized religious life he was an up and coming leader of the jew of the jews and to prove his worth and his zeal he chased christians all over israel drugged them into the streets, persecuted them, and to some of them he murdered. He did it all because they believed in Jesus. Paul described himself as to zeal a persecutor in the church, of, of the church. In later Paul's testimony before one of the kings, Paul actually calls himself a murderer of Christians. There was potentially no, no more Jew more influential on the persecution and murder of early Christians than Saul of Tarsus. Yet on one day, on the road to Damascus, in Acts chapter 9, as he was going to find and kill more Christians, the Lord Jesus met Paul, this this Saul of Tarsus. And from heaven, quite literally, knocked him to the ground and blinded him. It was at that moment that redeeming grace saved Saul of Tarsus. The Savior came looking for Saul, forgave him of all of his sins, and reconciled him to God. And in the text I just read to you, Paul gives one of the most striking, clear proclamations of the gospel of what he believed and second corinthians 521 when he said this this is what paul believed on that moment in on the road to damascus that god made him jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in jesus we might have the righteousness of christ on the road to damascus saul of tarsus believed that the life death and resurrection of jesus was was real and it was life transforming he believed in Christ and was saved from his sin and saved from the wrath of God. And Saul of Tarsus became Paul the Apostle. Saul the persecutor became Paul the Apostle. A, very, a, brand, new, a brand new person. Now listen, you, we cannot ignore, nor can we miss, the power of the gospel that is displayed in Saul of Tarsus's life being changed to Paul the Apostle. Christ died for our sins, rose again from the dead, and is seated at the right hand of God. He is the one mediator between God and man. He's the one reconciler between God and man. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through Jesus. So listen, if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ, or maybe you've been in church all of your life and you thought you trusted Christ, but today you know you haven't, listen, this is a good day to believe in Christ to put your faith in Christ, to save you from the wrath of God and to forgive you of all of your sins. You can start there this morning by being reconciled to God. Because Christ can transform you like he transformed Saul the murderer to become Paul the apostle. See, in this text before us, Paul shows us how the power of Christ transformed him. Shows us how Christ changed him from being the man he was to the man that he has become. This section is Paul's personal testimony, and it speaks to us about the transforming power of the gospel. I want you to notice a few things that he does in verses 14 through 20, and this is a second point in your outline, <clears throat> which is the transformative power of the gospel, because no one knew this gospel transformation probably better than Paul, and no one could explain it better than Paul because God chose him chose him to write about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And you're going to notice a few things that he writes that are transformative as he mentions the gospel's work in his soul. In verses 14 and 15, Paul wrote that Jesus transforms us from living for ourselves to living for him. Now we saw this last week, right? We saw when we looked at sin's effect on our relationships, and we saw that one of the effects is that sin turns us From living for God's glory and God's ideas and thoughts to our own. Sin tempts us to do things primarily for personal awards or accolades or prestige or power or money or possessions rather than living solely and primarily for the glory of God. And we do this in relationships. God intended our relationships to reveal the unity, love, and harmony found in the Godhead and to be a benefit to our fellow man. But what sin does, it turns our relationships into something else. It turns them into something about our personal needs and our personal interests. But Paul tells us that Christ's love is so compelling, so consuming, that it restores us to live for God, meaning Christ's power restores us to, to our original design to remember back before the fall God made us for his glory to live in this harmonious relationships with one another sin enters in and wrecks that whole thing but Christ comes in to restore us back to what God originally wanted and Paul most certainly saw this transformation in his own life he pursued Christians to harm them before he came to Christ because they got in his way of his religious zeal and and yet after trusting in Christ Paul was working to persuade people to turn their lives to Christ. The very people Paul was pursuing to kill now became his dearest friends and the ones he wanted to care for the most. That's transformation. See, that's what Christ does in our souls. He transforms us from living for ourselves to living for the interest of Christ. Friends, that's why God made you. He made you to live for His glory. To be a benefit to your fellow man, not merely for your own personal interest. And in creating us for relationships with one another, he created us to live in harmony and love and unity. Where sin moves us toward personal gain and personal interest and personal glory, notice what the love of Christ does. It compels us. It restores us to God's original plan for our relationships, which is the glory of God and the benefit of others. When Christ enters the soul, he turns, He flips our attention from ourselves back to God. And that's where Paul in verse 16 does something really interesting, is he talks about how Jesus transforms us to see people with new eyes. Paul in verse 16, it's like he anticipates a question. And the question would be, okay, Paul, that sounds fine. If we're not to live for ourselves anymore, what does it mean then to live for Christ? And in verse 16, Paul says that we begin to no longer judge people by fleshly standards. We see them instead with the eyes of heaven. See, what Christ does in us is something remarkable. It cha- he changes the way we see people. People that we were once prejudiced about, we now love. People that we once judged before, we now accept. People that we held at arm's length, we now are willing to give a hug to. Because Christ does something in our hearts. He transforms us to see people with different eyes. And Paul would know this. Before Christ, he judged people on fleshly or earthly things like their upbringing, their heritage, if they're a Jew or if they're a Gentile, where they, where they stood in their religious practices, and if they didn't agree with him, there was a price to pay. And we read in the early stages of the book of Acts what that price was. People were drug in the streets. They were beaten for not agreeing with Paul. And we're no different. We're no different. Our fleshly criteria has just changed. We judge people by their race, the color of their skin, their degree status age or generation that they're in, socioeconomic status, political party. We prejudge by earthly standards and we need the power of Christ to change this in us. We've got to be able to see beyond the earthly labels and look beyond something different. And like Paul, we no, who no longer used earthly standards... Christ's love compels something different in us to see people as image bearers of God, created for the glory of God, worthy of respect and created for relationship and being either in Christ or they're out of Christ. Those are the only things. No longer is there a price to pay if people disagree with us, but we can extend love and dignity and respect. I saw this on display several years ago at the coffee shop aka clf west some of us call it my coffee and it was a spot that we used to go hang out quite a bit and one day i was in there doing the normal work that i did and there was a brother in our church that came in and he and i engaged in conversation and there's another guy in the room that they begin to engage with this brother and this brother began to talk with him about the gospel of christ and a few different things going on in the world and this guy began to get visibly angry and just upset and this brother calmly was talking with him finally in the one moment of the conversation, the guy literally grabbed the table and kind of flipped it up and said, I'm done with this. You and I in the parking lot now. And this dude, this Christian brother was like, hey, what? 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 I mean, he's like looking around. Who? What? He just said, hey, man, listen, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not mad. If, if you disagree, that's fine. I got no problem disagreeing with you. I don't want to fight you. I, I just wanted to talk with you. I thought we were having a conversation. The guy storms out. This Christian brother looks at me like, Ugh, I don't know, man. I said, dude, I'm, I was, I'm, I'm ready, man. I mean, I was ready. To gen- I mean, the, the idea of going to the parking lot, that sounds great to me at the moment, right? And he's like, no, man, he ends up, we, we, he leaves, we talk about it. An hour later, that gentleman comes back in the coffee shop, looks all around the coffee shop, walks right over to me, he says, do you know that man? I said, yeah, that guy goes to my church. I'm his pastor. You know, like, you know, you know here I am. And he says, would you do me a favor if you see him? Would you extend my apologies? I way overreacted. That man treated me with unusual respect, and I so appreciated it. Now what happened in that brother was that Christ had transformed the way he dealt with people. I just want to challenge you for a moment. When others disagree with you or they have a label that you don't like, How do you engage them? How do you think about them? See, words that would normally be filled with racism or prejudice, in Christ, Christ's love is so compelling that those words and those thoughts begin to leave our minds and our hearts and certainly our mouths, because Christ has transformed us. That, friends, is powerful transformation. And Paul tells us why in verse 17, because he says this power of Christ is so powerful, that he literally is making us new. If anyone is in Christ, <clears throat> he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Something new has come. Now, some have said, well, what Christ does is, he, we got the house, and he comes in and he does a full, you know, he rips everything, and he kind of does a full renovation. And my response is, no, 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 no. What he does is, he looks at the house, it's dealt with sin, the termites of sin are all over it, and he rips it down. This is a brand new build. This isn't Christ restoring you and making you a new thing in a a modified thing. No, this is a brand new build. He's giving you new eyes. He's giving you a new heart. He's giving you new desires, new affections. He's giving you new ears where you begin to hear and see things totally different. See, the old ways, what's fascinating about this verse is Paul is dealing with how we've dealt with people. It's following verse 16. And what Paul is saying is, there's a brand new way of the way that we deal with other people. We no longer see them with fleshly eyes because if anybody's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old ways of dealing with people and dealing with God, those days are done. And the old ways of dealing with people were what? We would, we would shun them. We'd walk away from them. We'd separate from them. We would run from God moving away from God, and people now in the new build are no longer part of who we are. Why? Because we're new. See, Paul experienced this newness. Experienced it when he became a Christian and he started taking the gospel to the Gentiles, the people, the very people that his religion hated. People that he at one time despised. Yet after he met Christ... He was a new creation. He no longer judged people on external and earthly criteria, but saw them with heaven's eyes and made in the image of God. God had given him new affections and a new heart and new vision. That's what God does for us. See, that's the power of the gospel at work in us. That's transformative power. And when you get to verses 18 and 20, Paul does it again. It's like, okay, if it are me- if, if to be new... What does it mean to be new when Paul says a new means Jesus transforms us to be ministers of reconciliation representing God in the earth. Now just think this through for a moment when we were created as image bearers you'll remember this if you were here God made us to represent him in the earth sin enters in we start representing ourselves on the earth Christ comes in to die for our sin to restore us to God. So that Christ is restoring us to represent him on the earth. So when you read these verses, you have to realize Paul is saying, Jesus restores what sin stole. And in verse 18 he says, all of this is from God. God is the one who reconciled us to himself. God is the one who gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, you you and I can't do this on our own. We can't restore this work. Only Jesus can do that. God is the one who has to reconcile us. God is the first minister of reconciliation. God is the one who came after us. And when we are ministers of reconciliation, all we're doing is imitating what God has done, which is restore us to our original purpose and, as well, our original relationship with God. So you have to ask, and okay, great. Minister of reconciliation, what does that mean? What does it even look like? What is it? What is this word reconciliation? Well, reconciliation in most basic terms means this. Friends who became enemies or... Who were separated by something, making peace with one another by removing whatever it is that separated them and dealing with it to such a degree that it's never brought up again. Notice how Paul described the way God reconciled us to Christ, but through Christ in verse 19. In Christ, God was not (coughs) counting our trespasses against us. In other words, because Christ became sin for us, even though he didn't know sin and he died in our place, God did not count our sins against us anymore. God forgave us because Christ lived perfectly in our place, died in our place, and rose again from the dead. What God did was, God took the obstacle, sin between us, and he completely dealt with it in Christ. So reconciliation means God no longer counts our sin against us, but now, listen to this, sees us and considers us as his righteous children just like he considers Jesus his righteous son. Now, that that should blow your minds. He didn't just remove the obstacle. He obliterated it made a brand new way, if you will, to have this relationship, and then poured over it his own righteousness and said, come on in, you're mine, and meet your brother Jesus. What? (laughs) So, to represent God in this reconciling work and to be ministers of reconciliation, we've got to understand what that means. First, it means we want others to, to be reconciled to God through Jesus. I know this is going to sound really challenging, and i it's meant to be so. So you can take your pillows off your toes, because we're going to step on them a little bit here. Other people's sin against you is not as wrong nor as damning as their sin against God. I'm going to say that again. Others' sin or sins against you are not as wrong nor as damning as their sin against God. See, their sin against you reveals they have sinned against God, which reveals they need to be reconciled to God. But we like to respond out of our hurt and our pain and our bitterness and our why would you do that rather than seeing first, aha this is a unique opportunity to reveal to them their need to be reconciled to God. Friends, what your unreconciled enemies need most is they need to be reconciled to God first and foremost. So as ministers of reconciliation, we are to tell people the glorious news of reconciliation of God and with God through Jesus. This is what Paul meant in verse 11 when he said, we are persuading people. He's giving them compelling evidence that the only way to be reconciled to God was through Jesus. Now just think about this. This is Paul in Corinth who has been lamb about his ministry there. Yet what is he continuing to do? Let me display to you and tell you about the glorious news of Jesus. Your sin against me is revealing that you desperately need a Savior. Let me reveal that to you one more time. We are persuading people. And if we act a little crazy, it's because it's for God, and we want to be good for you, and we want to bring to you the gospel. And friends, listen, we we are to do the same. We are, we are called by God to be ministers of reconciliation. And that means being able to recognize the sin against me is not nearly as bad as the sin against God. But reconciliation has another work. It's not just helping people be reconciled to God through Jesus. It's also also being reconciled to others through Christ's power at work in us. In other words, God led the charge to reconcile us to himself so that we as Christians now can lead the way to be reconciled to others. This this is one of the most gut-wrenching things I do as a pastor. I will tell you honestly, 97% of my pastoral counseling has to do with conflict. And sadly enough, what I find is I find Christians unwilling to do what God has asked of them. I find many non-Christians willing to do whatever it takes because they don't want to have a bad relationship with somebody. And it sickens me. And it makes it really hard. The things that keep me up at night are not building plans. People who know me well know that. The thing that keep me up at night is, how in the world can we help these Christians and these people be reconciled? It's painful. This, this ability, sin, always separates. But listen, God is at work to bring us together. We see this all throughout Scripture. It's a massive part of our new creation. Again, don't disconnect new creation from relationships. Paul has been dealing with how God changed us and how it lets us see people and drop that new creation and this ambassadorial role into the idea of how, it hand, how we handle relationships. We, are no lo- we no longer desire, nor are we okay with being separated with others because of sin. Because in Christ... We, have, we will do all we can to be reconciled to them. And one of the ways we do that is by mirroring the same forgiveness that God gave to us. One of the ways we do this is by not counting others' sins against us. See, this means that, that God in Christ has forgiven us. We then will desire to forgive others who have hurt us. And in Christ, let me tell you this, if you're a child of God, You have the power within you, in Christ, to forgive others because Christ has forgiven you. It means that when we see people, we don't bring up all the bad things they've done to us. This happened to me this week. I was going to a particular place of business, and as I walked in the door, happened to see a dude that, you know, years ago we had a little bit of an issue, right? And we worked to reconcile that thing. And the moment I saw the guy, I just started thinking about all the issues in the past. You ever had that happen to you? Okay, I'm the only one? Okay, great. Um, Right? And I immediately stopped and I said, no, Lord, I, we have reconciled this. This is underneath Christ. I'm not going to let forgiveness take root, unforgiveness take root here. See, we don't hold them, people, at arm's length anymore, right? When we walk into Fred Meyer and we see them, we don't want them to go to the produce aisle and we'll go to the coffee aisle and hope we don't meet them at the cashier. We actually hope, I hope to meet them and see them and greet them. Matter of fact, I might even run them down, right? Now, next week, we're going to dive into forgiveness much farther, to understand what it means. Like, how, how do we do this? What, is it, what does it mean? Does it mean there's no consequences? Does it mean that we still you know, bring them over for dinner and we trust them with our lives? What does this mean? But right now, I want something to sink very deep in your soul about this. Step one of being a minister of reconciliation is being a person who knows how much you've been forgiven so that you can freely forgive others who sin against you because they're going to. It's going to happen. I really think this is what Paul meant when he got into verse 20 and said that we represent God by being an ambassador of Christ. See, we like to disconnect verse 20 as ambassadors from this whole work of reconciliation that God's doing. Think about it for a minute. An ambassador's role, we think of it as they roll off the red carpet and the dude prances in with all the prestige and stuff of the king and all that. It's, it's true in our world. But think about the king that you're representing. Your king came to earth, suffered, was a servant, got beaten. And what did they do with him? They put him on a cross. In in the, in my opinion, and I think the Bible will prove this, the most horrific sin in the, in the history of the universe. We put the Son of God on a cross. And we think, as his ambassadors, that we're not going to be sinned against and we don't have to forgive. Wait. 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 Take it. You are are an ambassador of a suffering, crucified king who was ill-treated, was beaten, was was bruised, was accused, and yet extended what? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And you think as an ambassador following this king, you're not going to have to do that? I actually think that's what he's talking about. We are representing a king forgiven much, Reconciled to God through Christ. And we implore others to be reconciled to God. And we work hard to be reconciled with others so that our world can see what amazing power is going on there in that life. How does that happen? Like this brother in the coffee shop. I I, I need to apologize to that guy. There's something at work in him that's so radically different because of the way he treated me. We want the world to see this power and understand and this display of unity that's found in us reconciling with one another. And no one knew this better than Paul. He was an ambassador of Judaism and his religious exploits. He chased people all over Israel and put such fear in people that they literally fled from their homes and moved locations because they were afraid of this guy. Yet on the road to Damascus, the risen Christ met him and transformed him. He began to love people, forgive others, and seek their well-being ahead of his own. And you have to ask why. There's only one reason. Because that's what Christ had done for him, and that's what Christ had done in him. That is a transformative power of the gospel. Now let's take a few things home with us. The first thing I want you to see is is that Jesus is the centerpiece and the reason for redemptive relationships? See, there there are a lot of reasons to live the normal experience of isolation, separation, and independence. Look, I, I can name I can name many more than I. I mean, it's not worth the time, the energy, the anxiety that you feel. I mean, my word, I, I could I could go on and on and on about looking. It is so easy. Because I love myself way better than you're ever going to love me. I can tell you that. Right? I can give myself a lot more comfort than you ever will. So it's all, real easy to just to sink back into my little home in Glide Oregon and just me, myself, and I and have a nice little party and we just do just fine without y'all. But there's one compelling reason why I can't live that way. And it's the love of Christ. It is compelling. It is consuming. It is life-dominating. It takes over every part of who I am and who you are as a Christian. Jesus came to us so that we might go to others. Jesus forgave us so that we could forgive others. Jesus made peace with us so we could we could live at peace with others. Jesus welcomed us so that we could welcome others. Do, do you see where this is going? Literally, for the Christian, there's no excuse to keep living in that isolated, independent life. As Christians, we are declaring to the world that Jesus matters deeply to us. And we're saying it by the way we handle ourselves. And since Jesus matters to us, that means that Jesus matters to us in how we handle our relationships. He matters to us in our marriages because there will be days that you just don't feel it. Or there's going to be a marital conflict that's so big that you just want to bag it. But as a Christian, because of Jesus' gift of grace to you, he empowers you to give grace to your spouse and seek to be at peace with them and deal with your own contribution to the problem, not just pointing out their little speck that you constantly have to have a problem with. He matters to our friendships, especially on days when we hurt our friends or they hurt us. Friends, it's going to happen. Your friend is going to hurt you. Your spouse is going to hurt you. Your pastor is going to hurt you. But Jesus is the friend who sticks closer than a brother so that we could extend friendship and forgiveness to our friends who hurt us. He matters to our parenting because we're going to sin against our kids. And they're going to sin against us no matter how little they may be. But Jesus came to us so that we might go to our kids. See, Jesus is the centerpiece and the reason for reconciliation. He restores us to God and he restores us to the God-given purpose of mirroring the harmony and unity found in the Godhead and it allows us to go to one another and deal with our issues really and honestly before God. But the second thing I want you to take home is that Jesus transforms us to care for people. When you look at this text in 2 Corinthians 5 and you see it, you overlay Paul's personal testimony, it is absolutely striking, the transformation in this guy's life. I mean, it's striking. Here's a murderer, a man who was murdering people, could care less about people and especially their souls, and was more concerned about defending his own religion from error. Now let that just drop on your soul, those of you who are religious zealots, that you want to protect Christianity from error. Notice Paul's attitude when he did it. It can always go off the rails with your own sin. Yet when Jesus saved Paul, what did he do? He became a man who sought to reconcile others to God and sought to be reconciled with others. Christ transformed Paul to care for people. And listen, he can do that in you. Those who know me best know I am not a sensitive, compassionate individual. Right? Right? My mantra in most games I coach is, suck it up. Figure it out. There's a way through, right? I cannot stand having to do counseling in the dugout, right? We're we're going to do something, right? (laughs) Had a player one time had a nine-out cry, meaning for three innings he cried. Nine outs. We gauge it by time of out. I've seen a six-out cry. I've seen a three-out cry. Never a nine-out cry. And I'm like, you're crying in the dugout. Yeah, okay. I'm not that compassionate guy. So when compassion comes out, I want to like make that a worship experience. Like, everything what God is. God this is what God's done. Wow. Well. God transforms us to care for people. What God did in my soul was give me people that I would die for, that I would give up my life for that I would stand in front of them and proclaim God's word every week because I love them so much. I cannot stand the thought that I would stand before an almighty God and not deliver to them the goods from God. See, that, that's what transformation is about. That's, it's, it's caring about people's souls enough to, she- and to share with them the good news of Jesus with them and caring so much about them that you'd seek reconciliation with them if you, if you messed it up. Now, you remember remember in Genesis chapter 4, after Cain killed his brother Abel, the Lord went looking for Abel. And remember Cain's reply? Am I my brother's keeper? Well, God's answer to that is actually, yes, Cain. Yes, you are. See, Cain's response is not just a frustrated, sarcastic answer. This is the answer of all of us who are so self-seeking and self-absorbed that we could care less about other people. But Christ transforms us to care for people. Listen, Christ restores to us the desire and the ability to be our brother's keeper. Listen, because Jesus was our keeper. No longer do we desire to harm them, we want to help them, even protect them. No longer do we ignore them. But we have mercy for them and room in our lives for them. Unlike Cain, we are our brothers, sis, brothers and sisters' keepers. We serve them, love them, encourage them, and if necessary, if necessary, we confront them with their sin for their benefit, for their good, because we care for them. And that can only happen if we're made new in Christ. Now, the last thing I want you to take home is that God always takes the first step to us so we can take the first step toward others. It's intriguing when you read two verses in, in Matthew. We're going to study these in two weeks. And notice the direction and the initiative. In Matthew 5, Jesus tells us if we've sinned against someone and we know it, we're to go to them <clears throat> and deal with that. Matthew 18 tells us that if, 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 we, if they've sinned against us, we're to go to them. Now what's interesting is, let's give an example. Let's say that I'd sinned against David Rubel and I knew it. I'm then to go meet Dave Rubel while at the same time, Dave Rubel knows I've sinned against him and Dave Rubel is to come to me and we're to basically have the same conversation. Dave, I sinned against you. Yeah, I know that's why I've come. I wanted to let you know you sinned against me. Notice the direction and the initiative. Neither party was told to stay put. Neither party was told, time heals all wounds, let it happen. It's fine. Just ignore it. Just let it go. It'll move on. You'll eventually get over it. You don't ever get over it. You know why you don't get over it? Because that obstacle between us will one day come back up in my mind or his mind in some critical moment of our relationship and it'll snap. So we're told to go to one another. Notice the, notice the way we're both to go. Now my question is, doesn't that mirror God? Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even when sin was first introduced in the Garden of Eden, God already made a plan to reconcile us. God moved first. He moved first. So listen, maybe right now, you're already thinking of somebody. You go, man, I, things are a little weird with them. We were friends. Not so much now. And you're waiting on them to come to you. I've heard this from countless people. Whenever they figured out they screwed it up, You know, I'll be ready to talk with them. And my response is, well, you know they screwed it up, right? Yes. Then you're to go to them and talk with them about that. Uh, Not so much, man. Because I don't think that we really understand the, the power and the initiative that God took for us. So this morning I would say to you, if you know somebody like that, don't wait on them. You go to them. Do what you can by going. Now, we're going to talk more about this in two weeks. Because th- th- you go, and this displays the work of Christ in you because the normal old you just stays separated and doesn't care. Let me give you a personal example of this. Several years ago, we were playing a baseball game. For those of you new, I coach baseball. If you don't know that, then you maybe haven't been here in a while. Um, I coach varsity baseball at a small Christian school here, and we were up playing a, a game against a, a rival school, and we were up 9 to nothing in the fifth inning. And the game's about to be over. And um, in the middle of that inning, my best player, for some reason, decided that he was going to steal, he was at first base, decided to steal second base. I didn't give him a steal sign. My guys know when we're up by certain runs, you don't do certain things. All of a sudden, he takes off running, but he didn't run. He decided to use this moment to act like a ballerina and pirouette down the baseline. Showing up the other team. Now, the other team's coach, if you give you the idea, the other team's coach was about six foot four. He was about 260 pounds of just ripped muscle. He had, uh, he had tattoos covering his entire body. He was a AAA baseball player, and he, hate, he formed a AAA baseball player, and he hated anything to disrespect the game. And he went ballistic. And we are playing at his little small school. His dugout was at first base. My assistant coach, Joe Gaither, was there, and he's screaming behind Joe's back. And letting us know how upset he was in this moment, and he is ready to fight. We get back in the dugout, really not knowing what to do. We're kind of gauging the moment. We recognize the size of the guy. I've, I've already tasked a couple coaches. Okay, you got that bat. You got this bat. You guys get the left leg. You get the right leg. Uh, let's make it into a ground war. Joe, will be good with that. I mean, we're going through the thing, and as we're going through, we eventually win the game, and we got to play another game that same day. And it's the day is still going. In between games, the coach is out on his field, and he's raking the he's raking the mound, and he's got a tamp, and a tamp is a big metal piece of, I don't know what you call it, big metal piece of thing, and you're, you 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 know most people use two hands. This guy's using one hand. One hand with a tamp, one hand with a rake, right? He's doing all the same time. I mean, he's a monster, and I just had this sense in my heart, I need to go talk to this guy and apologize and kind of clear the air, and I tell the guys, I'm going to go talk to him, and the dudes in the dugout are like... All right, man, we got your back. If anything goes down, I said, well, you better run fast because this guy could take me <laughs> down quick. So, <clears throat> so I walk out to the mound, and the dude, we not, he will not look at me. He's tamping, and he's tamping harder and harder. The And he's, the closer I get, and he's raking and tamping and raking. And tamping. And I'm waiting for the rake to go upside my head, the tamp to just put me in the ground. And I walk over to him and I say, hey, dude, um, look, you, you don't know me from anybody. I want to tell you something. What my kid did was wrong. And after the game's over, you're going to see him running extra. Can I borrow your field for extra conditioning? Absolutely. And I said, we're going to run him till he drops. Um, but he it was wrong. Uh, but I want to ask you to do me a favor. Let me coach my team, you coach yours, and let's not yell at each other across the field anymore. Right? If you got an issue with me, we can talk about it man to man, and I'd be glad to talk with you about it. I don't want there to be an issue between us. And of course, he's, you know. And he stops. He looks at me, and he says, Um, uh, you're right, man. I completely overreacted. I said, yeah, yeah, you did. <laughs> you know, I'm really <laughs> glad you said that, right? And I said, because you're way bigger than I am, you know. And uh, He said, and and we, we we made it right. And I was just talking to one of my assistant coaches earlier about it. And he said, you know, that moment was so fascinating because from that point on, that guy couldn't wait to get in the room with our coaches. And it made an impact in him. Years later, I had a guy in our church that actually worked with that guy that knew This guy was coming to our church and said, is that the church that Dave York's at? And he said, yeah. He said, man, that guy, I really respect that dude. I tell you that story because not, I don't want you to brag on it. I want you to realize that's what we do as Christians. Something in me, Christ in me compelled, I got to go. I cannot let this sit. And I went to this guy and it made an impact in his life. And so my, my challenge is, you'll notice what I'm saying, we go to others. G- going to others represents Jesus to a lost and dying world. They have no category for this. No category for when a Christian says, I blew it at work, man. Can I talk to you about what I did in that meeting? I need to ask you to forgive me. And here's why I'm asking you to forgive me. There's no category for this. This is why God made you to represent him in the earth as a minister of reconciliation. And it's one reason why Christ came to restore you to that. It's going to take courage. It'll take humility. It's going to take perseverance. But listen, more than all the character traits, it's going to take the power of Christ, which, listen, if you're a child of God, is it in you? See, that's why it startles me when Christians say no. I think, wait, stop. You had the power of Christ at work in you. Why would you say no to even attempting this? So we're going to pray to that end today. Now this is a great lead into communion. We're going to do communion today. And it's a great opportunity to just spend a moment before the Lord to say, God, is there anybody in my life that I have not pursued reconciliation with? Maybe you know you've sinned against somebody. And Matthew 5 would tell you, if you know that, then leave your offering at the altar and go be reconciled. Go go talk to them. Maybe it's somebody in the room you need to go visit with before you take communion. Maybe it's somebody right now that you go, <clears throat> you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to commit myself right after church. I'm going to call them. I'm going to text them. I'm going to write them. I'm going to get this thing moving in the right direction here. And I'm going to pray for you this morning. Maybe this morning you realize, I don't trust Christ. I've, I've never been a child of God. And you need to trust Jesus with your life. And you realize this power... You you don't have this power and you need Christ. But I I also want to pray that if you've been convicted about the way you talk about people, listen, I'm just being honest with you. The way our culture speaks about one another from different political aisles in the church has got to stop. We got to stop. We got to stop thinking poorly about somebody disagreeing with our position and start seeing them made in the image of God no matter what angle you think they're coming from. And allow your heart to settle into God and you speaking his wisdom into those situations. You cannot do it angry. I can tell you that from experience. You can only do it by the power of God and the grace of God and doing it peaceably to people like this brother did in the coffee shop. So I want to pray to that end. Now we're going to pray here. Perry and the team are going to come up and they're going to lead us in worship after we're done praying. We're going to take communion. Now, the way we do communion here, if you're if you're in the bottom level here and you're halfway up, you come and get your elements in the front. You're halfway back, you get them in the lobby. There's elements up on the of the balcony over here as well in the uh, in the library. Okay, but let's pray and prepare ourselves for taking communion before the Lord. Let's do that. Father, we, we are people in need of much grace. Don't you agree, church? We we need... You have opened our eyes this morning to relationships. You've opened our eyes to attitudes. You've opened our eyes to words that we've said or done, that uh, spoken that are not pleasing to you. <clears throat> and we ask you to forgive us. And right now, church, just b- before your God, confess your sin to God. If you're his child, he graciously accepts you confess and tell him what you've thought what you're dealing with and father there there are brothers and sisters this morning that they have held people at arm's length they've been unforgiving they've not gone to people this morning and i pray for them that you would help them to settle in their hearts this morning to follow you to go first I also pray for friends that are here that don't know you. I, I pray that maybe today they would see their need for Jesus and they would confess and believe in Christ. And if that's you this morning, just turn your heart to Christ by just telling him that you're a sinner, you know you are, that you need his you need his salvation and you want you believe in it with all your heart and you want to give your life to him, you want to follow him. But Father, we we ask you to help us represent you well by being ambassadors of reconciliation. first to help people see their need for God and Christ. and second, Lord, that we would we would make it our aim that if possible with us, we would be at peace with all men. so father, we we thank you for doing business with us today. As we take communion this morning, Father, we we pray we'd experience your presence, your grace. That we would enjoy your work in our lives as you free us from ourselves to live more for the glory of Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.